please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes, it's Hanna Kristel Sigur Karlsdóttir. And just as a question, do you go by the full amount of that? Because I know some people in Iceland have dropped certain names and things like this. So do you, professionally, you go by all three names? No, professionally, I go by my two names, Hanna Kristel, because Hanna is quite common, I guess. And so Hanna Kristel is how I present myself. Yeah. Okay. Now, and you were part of, and I get, I'm so, so this is going to be a horrible thing for pronunciations this whole time. So, the name of the arts organization that you work for is Skaftfet. I'm sorry. Yes, Skaftfet. I would never have gotten that by reading. I would have said Skaftfell. Yeah, but that's fine. People also say Skaftfell, and that's fine. You can just continue with that. All right, I will. <laughs> <laughs> Skaft felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this at. It's like these two L's, and you pronounce it. You do this weird sound. I, I yeah, would, I, yeah, I would never be able to remember to do that. Nor can I probably do it. Yeah, so Skaft fell is fine. Uh, you know, that's fine. Okay, now you're the co-director and education manager. How did you sort of come to this position? I have quite a long connection with Skatvell. I came to Seydisfjörður, where Skatvell is located and where I live. I started coming here in the beginning, yeah, around 2000. And my friend moved here around 2005, I think. And then I started visiting and she worked for Skatvell. So I started getting some projects through her for Skatvell mainly educational, and then I was mainly working projects through projects, and then I started working on, in 2015. I got my position as educational manager, and then in 2000, uh, or last year, basically, the director we had, he quit, and me and my co-worker, Julia, Julia Martin, who is from Germany, and she's also been working since 2015, we decided to take over, and which we did and have been doing now for a year now. Okay, but Skoftfell does many different things. Like, So you've got education stuff, you've got a re- residency program, you've got a, a coffee shop, if I saw correctly, gallery, and a bunch of other stuff. So like, give, I guess give me like a little bit of an understanding of w- what everything is that you all offer. Yeah, so Skaftvill is a self-owned organization. So we own the house. It was gift from an older couple from Seydisfjörður. And it's on three floors. And on the top floor, we have the residency apartment, which is for our artists who come in a residency. And then on the second floor, we have exhibition gallery. And then on the first floor, there is a bistro, but we don't run the bistro. We rent out, so there's somebody else who is running the bistro. But there, in the bistro, we do have a small library with art books, and we have an exhibition wall called the West Wall, which is, I mean, the gallery, we have around four to five exhibitions a year, and in the West Wall, it's more loose you know we invite people who are local artists or sometimes artists in residence exhibit there 
But then we have these exhibitions in the gallery, and then we have the residency, and then we have the educational part. So that's these three parts that we basically are doing most of the time. And you also have printmaking facilities. Yes. Well, that was located in the Technical Museum that we have here. But we had, I don't know if you heard about it, but we had big mudslides in December, last December. And the whole museum, or not the whole, but most of it went under the mudslide. The mudslide took around 10 or 12 houses in Seisfjörder. It was a huge deal. So, I mean, there we had, or, you know, the Technical Museum had a small facility. It was basically presses from Dieter Roth, owned by Dieter Roth. And they all went, it's all gone. But this is something we were able to use in collaboration with the Technical Museum. So we had started to kind of build it up in collaboration with the Technical Museum and with a school called the Lunka School. I don't know if you've heard about that. You can just assume I haven't heard about anything in Iceland. Yeah. Okay. Anything. Okay. Yeah. So we had both us and the school had started to kind of build it up, make the facility better because it was quite low key, you could say. So we were trying to build it up, but it's all gone now. But we have started to build up a new one because the museum is going to be built up in some way. So this is, yeah, the printing facility is something that we are excited to build up again. I was going to say, do they have it? Do you all have like insurance for mudslides, like to be able to replace stuff? Yes, we have both for mudslides and avalanche. We have this fund in Iceland. I mean, you pay through your insurance. You pay some part of it goes into this fund. So all the houses that go, you know, went in this mudslide, they get paid for that. That's fabulous. I'm I'm American, so like our insurance companies suck. Yeah. But I mean for the museum, they only it's what they get is oh, I don't know the term in English, but it's like calculated through, you know, some sort of the worth of the house, you know. Yeah, de- depreciated worth of the house. So not like the not like the if they were to resell it, the value they could get for it, but the value of it. Basically, if you want to rebuild. And that can be, often it can be out of context with the real price of rebuilding, which I would presume it is with the Technical Museum. But there's will to, you know, rebuild it somehow. But it will take probably some time also to decide where and how. And yeah, so it's a huge deal now, this thing. And there's a lot of houses in the fjord that are not on a safe area. So now that's also something people need to decide. Can we you know, prevent this from happening again? Or should we move the houses? You know, it's just a yeah, huge deal. I assume nobody got hurt. No, but it was quite... Nobody got hurt. Excellent, okay. Yeah, it was a few people... It came close, you can say. Yeah, for a few people. Close is fine. Death and de- de- danger in the older. Okay. Now, okay, you brought up Dieter Roth. Now, 
I'm sort of fascinated because I, I, I just started speaking to people from Iceland and his name has come up a number of times. Uh, and why is he so, I don't know, influential or whatever to the people of Iceland? I think it just has to do that he basically came with a lot of influence. I mean, you know his background? A little bit. He was quite creative and he was not only doing printing, he was doing sculptures and he was doing videos and he was doing furnitures even here in Iceland. And I think he was probably very active. He worked a lot and he had few studios around Iceland, at least at three places. And I've heard that he tried to keep all his studios the same. You know, it was always the same table, you know, same system, same shelf system, stuff like that. And he would always have paper and pen ready to work. So it seems like he was very productive and constantly working. That sounds magical to have like multiple studios that are set up exactly the same. So you can just walk in and know exactly where everything is and how everything works. Oh, Yeah, exactly. So, and he seems to have been a strong character. He was teaching at the old academy and a lot of my old, you know, not old, but my teachers were taught by him. And he came here in Seyðsfjörður in the beginning of the 90s. And his aim was to hang out in the next fjord, which is nobody lives there anymore. But I don't know what he was actually doing there. And then he started to know people here and he found an old house that he bought and it became his studio. So he visited the fjord quite often. Yeah. So he had a lot of influence in the fjord. I don't know. I mean, I I I was aware of his work, but it seems like he was very influential in that region. Like you know, it's it's like going to Spain and somebody talking about Picasso, you know, kind of thing. Like I mean, it seems like you all have embraced him and his ideas a, a lot. Yeah, he did influence a lot, and I mean, I now the people who founded actually Skaftfell. Skaftfell was founded in 1998. Just little after when he passed away. And this group of people, most of them were a friend of his. And he exhibited a year before he passed away in Skaftfell. They made an exhibition. And they were on their way, I think, to exhibit again when he passed away. And then they had like a big group exhibition in kind of in memoriam of him. Okay. Now... I don't know anything about living in Iceland, so bear with my stupidity of the whole thing. Is running an arts organization such as yours or being the co-director, is this a full-time job? Do you have other things that you have to do or choose to do? Well, Skaftfell is an underfinanced, like so many cultural institutions. I've never met an institution that goes, you know what, got plenty of money, don't need any more. Yeah, exactly. No, that's not the case for us. So we do, our position is 70 percentage. It used to be 50 and now we're 70. Okay, wait, I'm fascinated by this because every person I spoke to in all the Norwegian countries have always referred to their jobs as 50%, 70%, 20%. Like you all actually like put this in your contracts that like this will be a 70% job. Yes, it's so one we it's like one job and then it's 0.7. Yeah. 
and you put that in your contract. Yeah, exactly. It's just fascinating. I mean, that is such a precise thing to talk about because like in the US, it's like you're part-time, which means 20 hours or less a week or you're full-time, which is 40 hours on average a week. And that's it. And you're either part-time or full-time. But it seems like in Scandinavia, you all do this like 25%, 75%. Like it's an exact number. And I actually really personally appreciate it. I think it's very clear that way. Exactly. I mean, I, of course. And then I just count my hours and that's, you know, the hours I get paid for. I think it's magnificent. But I mean, often I work too much and then I just have to have a longer vacation, which is fine. I mean, I have a long vacation in July when my kids are off in their school and or have a summer break. And also often in December, that's nice to have a long vacation. You're working like teacher type of times. It's good. Yeah, yeah, in a way. Yeah, summer off, Christmas off, New Year's off. I love it. Exactly. But I mean, when you're running something, you're never really off. You know, we're always on a standby. So you're always responsible of everything. And the summer staff calls you and like, oh, what? You know, I need information about this and that. Or you need to record a podcast. Yeah, Exactly. Okay, but now you're also part of a, a group, a Rochambeau. Yes, that I'm not really part of it. It has kind of become one person kind of a thing. Yeah, when we started in 2000 and oh, time flies, 2012 or 13 or something, we didn't really know what we were doing. We just wanted to do something creative together, which we did. I mean, we did all sorts of stuff. We did like a pop-up bakery and we did like these layout jobs. Mm, graphic design. Graphic design, exactly. And we did this book with photographs of Seydisfjörður. It was like for the municipality, like this kind of a tourist book. Yeah, we just did all sorts of things. And then we started doing this mattress made out of wool completely the filling was icelandic wool and like the material covering it was like this danish fabric made completely out of wool but when we started doing that i was pregnant and working and you know renovating a house and i slowly started kind of disappearing from this collaboration and i still have so many things that I need to take care of. So I haven't had the time for it. And now one of us, Litt and Nystrom, she has kind of taken over the whole thing. Okay. Well, let's go back a step though. So like, how did you get into being creative? Because I saw that you went to the Icelandic Academy of the Arts, but like, were your parents creative? Like, how did you even come to go saying like, you know what, I want to study art? Well, no, neither of them were working in the creative field. But I was always, since I was a kid, I was constantly, you know, drawing and had a very, I would say, a creative mind set. And I, from a very early stage, I would think of myself as, you know, I could become an artist. But my parents, they introduced me to all sorts of culture, you know, music and literature and visual art. So I was... I wasn't kept from, you know, they were like informing me. Where was this? I was 
born in Sweden. And then I lived there until I was three years old. And then we moved to Reykjavik, Iceland. And we travel a lot, but we did travel abroad. And then we would always go to museum. But we would normally visit museums with kind of, you know, old-fashioned paintings, you know, or sculpture. So I wasn't aware of, you know, contemporary art until I was quite much, much older. I can't tell if you meant that as a condescending way of like old-fashioned paintings. No, 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 no. But, you know, not at all, because I love old paintings. (laughs) But no, it was more like I wasn't aware of that you could expand visual art from out of a painting or a sculpture. You could say that. I mean, I was amazed just when I saw, when I was eight years old, I got to know Salvador Dali or, you know, Picasso or something, you know. I thought that was amazing. And I still think it's interesting, but I wasn't aware of that you were able to expand from that, you know. It is an interesting transition, sort of going from seeing historical works, like in a museum, in in a, like place of prestige and out of context to being able to say, but I can do that and and do something new with it. Like that's an interesting transition that we all go through at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Okay. And then you, then you ended up going to Reykjavik. So then how did you get from Reykjavik to the town you live in now? So I lived in Reykjavik until I was 30 years old. So I was brought up there and I went to a high school and I was actually aiming for, I was studying mathematics and natural science because I guess I'm interested in that as well. I was a bit split between being creative and doing something more systematic. I'm all about systematic. Like I would love it if the art world had like an Excel spreadsheet with like a checklist. I'm all about it. Exactly. And I guess that's why I'm doing this job I'm doing now. I mean, I am good at having a system, making a system and organizing, but I also have this creative side of me. I had to kind of come to term with that because I didn't know if I found that I had to choose between, you know, I have to do either or, but I recently I come to term that I just can maybe do both, you know. Sure. Why not? Yeah, exactly. So I studied in high school in Reykjavik, and then I went into this, not the academy, but this preparation art school for the academy. And I really enjoyed that. It was fantastic. We were testing all sorts of methods, and it was really a lot of fun. And then after that, I went into the academy. And then, I mean, after that, I was kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do and exhibiting once in a while. And then when I was 30, I went to Seydersfjörder. I had been visiting Seydersfjörder quite a lot. And then I went there with my husband for one summer and I was working for Skaftfell. And then we decided to it would be fun to buy an old house and renovate because there's a lot of old, beautiful houses here in this small fjord. <laughs> and we thought it would be a good idea, which, I mean, it was. But we thought we could just travel between Reykjavik and Seydersfjörder and just do a bit, you know, renovate the house here and then in Reykjavik. And, but it was, became too complicated. 
and especially when we had our daughter who's now 10 years old then we just decided to give Seyisfjörður a chance and we moved here and have states okay now i've got to ask a question because i and i'm going to come off it's probably very i don't know what i'm going to come off as but probably wrong about a lot of things but I grew up in a major metropolitan area. I'm pretty much like a city slash suburban boy. And so the idea of living in a very um, rural? Remote. Remote. Excellent word. Remote. I like that. So we'll go with remote. (laughs) A very remote location. In some ways, it's very romantic and uh, very um, really beautiful sounding but I imagine there are a lot of difficulties that are sort of underneath it, but like people like me would not know. So like what are like, but specifically within the arts or like, what are some of the difficulties about being a creative person and living in a very remote area? I would say in the case of say this further, it's easier because the town has for some reason that I don't know how it's, evolved but for some reason people who live here are quite open to creative people and the town is basically bursting out of creative people coming here staying for a short time or a longer time or moving here and doing all sorts of creative things it wouldn't happen here unless people are open and positive towards it i think and maybe Skaftfell has something to do with it as well. And Dieter, I mean, it might have opened up people's eyes more because, I mean, I guess it's happening all over, but this town has specifically become like more creative somehow than other places. But yeah. Well, but what I sort of what I'm wondering about is, is like, okay, you're not in any sort of a hub of the arts. <laughs> And I'm I and again I'm working from stupidity and ignorance on this. I assume there's probably not some great, let's say, art supply store there. Exactly. No, but that's something. You have to work with what you have available. Yes, exactly. And that can be creative as well. I mean, people who come here and stay here in the residency, most of the time they stay for one month or two months. People who stay for one month, they most of the time, you know, are like, oh, I should have stayed for two months because then they have just started and become acquainted. You know, the energy has kind of started working. And yes, but most people stay for yeah one or two months and they just have to work with what they have. And we try to prepare them. We try to inform them. And I mean, this is not maybe the best place to come and make something big. I mean, then you just have to send it and it's, you know, it's not cheap. Yes, which is a general residency advice that I've heard before. <laughs> like, Don't go to a residency and make a massive thing that you then have to ship at the end. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of the artists who come and stay with us, they do some sort of an event or have an open studio. We try to, and that's one of the things, because we find it important, because it's a really small place and the audience is quite small and you have to keep a good contact 
with the audience and with the people in the town. And a lot of the artists also want to work with the locals. So you need to keep good contact with the locals and to have like open studio or artist talk or, you know, that's very valuable. I mean, there's not a lot of people who come always, but I mean, if you have five people, that's fine. You know, you have an audience and you have conversation and you have people who are interested. Well, a residency from the participant side is a lot of it is about seeing and experiencing something new, meeting new people, being in a new place, but also time away from their stress of their own personal lives kind of thing. So, I mean, just just that experience is amazing. But I, now I'm always interested. I love artist residencies. Like, oh, my God, they're so magnificent. I wish I could do more of them. But alas, the so like, how do you make decisions? Do you have like a huge amount of applications and only a few people get accepted, or are you very picky about who you accept? Like, how is that process done? We do have so this is Julia's actually, she's in on top of this, but we do have, I don't know, between maybe 200, 300 applications. It, it does depend on because sometimes we get this. Culture Contact North grant that we can give to three artists, two to three artists per year. And of course, that is very popular, but that's only for people in the northern countries and Baltic. It's always popular to be funded. Absolutely. Of course. So we get a lot of applications when we have an open call for that. Yeah, we always have artists. We choose people, two to three people to make a shortlist, basically. And that's always like an artist local or we have a board, five people at our board and sometimes somebody at the board. So there's always somebody who chooses and then we make a shortlist and then we may are in the decision-making of choosing in the end. So what I'm trying to fi- figure out from my end, so like your, your residency versus, let's say, bigger, more comprehensive residencies, because I've spoken to some people who have like, you know, 20 artists at the same time at a residency. Yours is very intimate and self-driven. So like what makes for a good, uh, a resident basically. So like, you know, it's, it's a, it's almost like a, your residency sort of based around sort of solitude, quiet time away kind of a thing. Basically, you're asking me who would we choose, or I mean, what are you asking? Well, no, because I'm not asking like like disciplinary. Like, would you choose an oil painter over a photographer? No, but a bit. It's it's sort of like what's the kind of thing that you want from your residents? Like, what what's like personality type? Uh, sort of a, what they're investigating? Like, what's the thing that goes? Like, Ooh, that person would do great here. Oh, I mean, we always ask people to give us. They have to describe basically what they want to use their time for and that is important it's important that they know what they're aiming for but it's not like we you know ask them after one month like okay so have you done this or that you know it's up to them of course but it's about I guess it's people who are in the middle of some sort of a project and feel like this somehow can benefit from staying here that they can continue on their project basically of course people are so different some people are very social and active and some people are not as social and not as active and that's fine 
but we do try to have with the social aspect we try to have always at least two or three artists at the same time because then they socialize from each other because in the beginning they were only always one artist you know then we have to put a lot of effort into socializing and of course we want to do that but a certain point because then we have to have a break you know so it's really good to have around three artists that's a perfect i think amount of artists and like I said, I'm never in this process. It's Julia who is more in the process. And I think she tries to kind of look into how people might associate better together or even benefit from each other, you know. But because people are coming here all year round, except for July and December, that's our off months. So she needs to, you know, people can come at a certain time and not this time. You know, it's like a puzzle basically. And then she has a lot of yeses. And then like in the last minute, no, I cannot come, you know. So it can be, yeah, complicated to put this together. But I mean, I think most of the time, the group of artists we have, they somehow get along, you know, and benefit from each other and are often up for doing something like a small exhibition or event or something together. And of course, it's also very very different between when you come here because if you come here in the middle of the winter it's dark it's very isolated the mountain we have to pass over of is sometimes closed and you know and all kinds of weather and so you have to be prepared for that also mentally you have to be kind of up for that but in the summertime it's of course you know, it can also just rain or the weather can be all sorts of, you know, different kinds. I mean, it snowed in June. What? What? Yes. On the 16th of June, it was snowing in Seydisfjord. <laughs> yeah, that's rare, but yeah, it was not fun. That's weird. Yes. But now we have 20 degrees, so it's fine. We're okay. But I mean, what I'm saying is that it also depends on the mood of the town is so different between when you come here in the middle of the winter or if you come here in the spring or summer. Sure. Yeah. And the summer is more busy also. The energy is much higher. So it it's also, you know, Julia tries to kind of find out what are the artists in what kind of mood are they? You know, are you into being isolated in the darkness, you know? If you're inherently depressed, do not come in the wintertime. No, exactly. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to travel over this mountain and it can be scary and it can be... What kind of mountain and pass are you talking about that's scary? Yeah, I mean, it's quite... uh, I don't remember how it's high, but it's the highest road you travel over in Iceland and in bad weather it just closes down and it can be closed for a few days and you have to be prepared that you cannot go away you know during these days that sounds like the kind of thing like like they say like oh you can't climb the mountain like Mount Everest because of bad weather they've closed the mountain you're basically saying a road can be done the same way in Iceland Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, always in the wintertime, I always, there's a website, you have a look and see the road conditions. And, you know, it's just the basic thing. If you want to go over, you do that. 
Okay, but do you all have like DHL, UPS deliveries and stuff? Are you completely detached from the world in that way? No, no, it's not. I mean, this is only for like one or two days. So when it opens again, it's fine. You know, you go over. I mean, we do have a grocery store here, but it's not the cheapest one. So you want to go over the mountain to the cheaper one. And you try then to buy a lot of food. So, yeah. Well, I mean, but that's that's what I wonder about living in a remote place. It's like, I love the idea of living in a remote place personally. My wife is not there yet, but I, I, I'm I'm really for it. But it, it seems like a bit of a, uh, like, it's a, it's a remote lifestyle, basically. And like, you have to accept that you aren't going to get whatever, the freshest of this, the, the widest range of that. But I believe if there's ever been a time throughout history to live remotely like you are, now is it because quite honestly like you can get anything on the internet yeah exactly that's true and you do get anything you know and i guess i wouldn't be living here if it wasn't for the internet probably i mean it's too remote for me even but the internet does open up you know many options for you so definitely absolutely i mean cuz i mean you know like what t- even 30 years ago if you needed I'm thinking just art stuff. So like art supplies and particular things like you would just simply would not have access to them living in a remote place. But now literally you can get art supplies from anywhere in the world shipped to you just with a click of a button. Yeah, exactly. And that's also what we always tell our artists in residence. You know, it's not that hard to, I can call a shop in Reykjavik and they deliver it the next day. You know, it's here the next day, almost. How far away is Reykjavik? It's on the other side of the country. It's like 800 kilometers. You can go both south way or north way, and it's approximately the same. That's like, what, seven hours? Ah, then you have to speed a lot. Yeah, you can only, (laughs) yeah, I would say eight, nine. Which I probably would. Yes, that's fine. Yeah, you can only try. It's the 90 kilometers per hour is the fastest. Okay, so yeah, nine to, nine to 10 hours with some stops in there. That's okay. That's not close. But. Yeah, and it's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Even I, if I have driven these roads a lot and I'm still like, wow, you know, the landscape is so beautiful, especially on the south side. Well, that's what they say about Iceland is that it is so stunning. I mean, because like, that's one of my things, like, and I asked this of a previous guest who lives in Iceland. It's like, I, in no way, shape or form am I saying anything bad about Iceland. I want to start with that, but it's sort of like, why stay there? Yes. I have asked myself that question, you know, do you mean like in the island, right? Why? Well, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I'm not saying anything bad about Iceland at all, but it's beautiful and there's there's family and there's culture and all this stuff and i get all that but like but it's not the hub of anything i mean it's literally an island in the middle of nowhere basically so it's like it, it's sort of like you know for those people who like want to make a name in the arts or be active in the arts and stuff like why choose to stay there it's a good question i mean i think most people do travel abroad for certain time you know living or studying or yeah i don't know why do people come back i mean it's probably the family that just maybe the way of living or something i don't know i mean i also ask myself the same question because i'm from reykjavik and i live here and 
you know, why do I live here? And I'm, why don't I just move to, back to Reykjavik? And that's always an option, you know, for me. I can always go back. But, I mean, we are thriving well here. We are able to do our stuff here. And even though we cannot get everything here, it's a bit easier kind of way of living here. It's so small, you know, it's so noiseless. And crime is probably minimal. You probably feel very safe. There's lots of things like that. Yeah, 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 definitely. And my 10-year-old is just running outside all day long and I hardly know, you know, where she is. And I don't worry about her. I mean, I guess it's a little bit like that in Reykjavik. I mean, you just stay in your, where you live, you know, and then your kid runs around there as well. But it's even more like, what do you say, free. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of beautiful things about the idea of living remotely. I mean, I guess, you know, a lot of people have this sort of <laughs> you know, beautiful, like, oh, my my pace of life is going to slow down and I can be very relaxed. And I keep thinking, I'm like, that's bullshit. Like, you're still going to be busy. You're still raising kids. You're trying to make money. You're trying to re- fix something, build something, whatever. Like, like you, you, it's it's never like a life of leisure just being there. Exactly. I mean, when you have kids, it's never a leisure. I mean, it's just wherever you are, it's just always noisy, you know. And, you know, we are renovating, still renovating our house and we have our job and we are also doing our creative stuff, our own stuff. What does your husband do? He works as a carpenter and, you know, just has his own company and does his own projects mostly like renovating old houses. I was going to say so your house is like the cobbler's shoes kind of thing like the basically he goes to work and does carpentry so when he comes home he doesn't want to do carpentry. Yes, that's yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. And then he's also doing experimental music. Yeah, and has been doing some visual art from in relation with experimental music or noise. I I would love to move out to a remote place. So so my question really is this: is like, is living in a remote place that much better, creatively? I should even say, or or you know, artistically or inspirationally? Like, is it really that much better than living in, let's say, a city like Reykjavik? I think it has, like everything, has its ups and its downsides. Here you have. It feels like if you have an idea, you often have a shorter way to execute it. You have so many people around you that you can contact and get help from. And people, that's maybe the core thing about living in a small place. People tend to help out more. So if you need something, you can call this or that you know, person, or you can put on Facebook, like, oh, I need this or that. And, you know, and then 10 minutes later, somebody's like, okay, I have it, you know, if you need it. So in that way, it can often be kind of easier to execute. Yeah, because when you live in a city and you need something, it's like, nobody's going to help you. No, everybody's so busy and they're doing their own thing. And of course, people are here as well, but it's just so small. The society is so small, it's easier to help out. And like I said before, it's this town is like bursting out of creativity. And there's so many people who are, you know, doing a lot of creative stuff. And that 
will always, it affects you, you know. If somebody has an idea, you think, oh, I, I also have some an idea and I could do that, you know. If he or she can execute something, yeah, I can do it. So in that way, I, I think many things, we wouldn't have done it in Reykjavik. But here, of course, you don't have access to museums or exhibitions and, you know, openings and stuff like that. But I visit Reykjavik quite a lot and I try to go to exhibitions and try to, you know. And in my job, I have to also keep connection and follow up. So, All right. There's something on your web, on the, the, the website. Shit, the Scott Scott full 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 health. Ah, yes, pronunciation <laughs> not my forte, but okay. The thing called <laughs> again, I'm gonna fucking butcher this. It's Tvisunger. 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 Yeah, it was good. Yeah, fascinating structure that has been built out there. Now, I mean, this seems like it was done before your time there, but I'm imagining, does it still exist? Yes, it exists. I was just about, I was actually working at Skaftfett when they were doing, constructing it. And yeah, it's it's still there. And it's a really fascinating outdoor sculpture, like sound sculpture with these five domes, you could say, different size domes. And if you go inside, it has this special acoustic and the sound travels between the domes and it's fascinating. Yeah. I read all about it. I mean, the five tones of the of Icelandic music and all. I mean, it's really interesting. Why build it there? There? That's a really good question. <laughs> the artist's name is Lukas Kühne. He's from Germany. And I actually don't know. I think he knows an artist couple, Icelandic artist couple, who they have a house here. They're not based here, but they, you know, come here once in a while. And I think he knew them and got this idea that it would be a nice spot, you know, to put this. And and I have to admit, I was like a bit suspicious or I like, oh, can this be done? And, you know, how is it going to be you know, done? I mean, you're already in the middle of nowhere. And then this place is in the middle of nowhere, outside of your middle of nowhere. And it's up on a hill even, you know. It looks magnificent. I mean, I mean, I'm sure, and I'm sure, I'm sure it would be beautiful to be standing in it like at sunset and like having music playing. I mean, it would probably be magical. It's fabulous. It's so nice. And it's such a perfect spot, actually. It only takes people like 20 minutes to walk up there. It's quite easy hike. So almost everybody can go there. And it's a beautiful spot and a beautiful art piece. And I'm so happy about it, you know. And I can always, when people are asking, so what can we do here, you know, I can always send people over there and they're happy with it. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I would imagine, like, in my youth, I played in a band. I was horrible, but our band sucked. But I played in a band. But, like, do people do performances or do recordings in there? Like, is it utilized beyond just, like, personal experiences? Well, we did make, I think it was the summer after or even two summers after, we tried to do some sort of events, musical and or performance-based events. And it was really success, but then we haven't 
done anything with it after that. It was kind of start, you know, just presenting it also and, you know, let people know about it. And if they want to do something, they can. It just seems like a great location for some really interesting acoustic, you know, person to like say i'm gonna go to this far off place with my recording equipment and create this album using the acoustics of this place yeah exactly but it hasn't been done yet huh it hasn't been no i mean we thought about trying to you know we have so many projects going on but one idea was actually to open up if an artist who's working with sound would be open up for you know working with it I could see it like you've got five rooms. So you have five, you could even separate the rooms and put five different instruments in each room and record each one with their own acoustics. And like, it could be amazing. Yeah. You have to come. I'm not a musician. I mean, I'm happy to come, but I'm not a musician. Okay. Doing audio podcast editing is as close as I get to music. That's no, I can barely keep rhythm. Okay. (laughs) But I have lots of friends that, that do it. So. I used to be a roadie, so I used to work in the music industry a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, if people are interested, we would be happy to help them out with figuring it out. Very cool. Last little bit. Uh, you Now, you work specifically in the education wing of the, of the program. So tell me, so what you're in a rural, remote area. How much educational stuff, like what, what do you do? like for that purpose? I try to look at education for everybody. Kids, grown-ups, I mean, not maybe professional artists. Yeah, I mean, yeah, professional artists as well, you. and Well, the, the residency is helping professional artists. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have the easiest way to produce an educational product is always with kids. It's just so easy. It's the easiest project to fund. So, I mean, we started there. And since 2009, we have been doing, every year we have been doing, or even earlier to state. Yeah. Well, we have been doing educational projects for all kids at the age of 10 to 11 in the whole Eastern region. So every year we make a project and we go into the schools with a project for the kids. And that just has been our thing. You know, we produce this every year. And then we have had courses for kids. But that depends on, of course, who is around to be able to teach courses. I mean, because with kids, it has to be, you know, a person who likes kids and, you know, want to teach kids. It's funny you say that because, like, I'm a professor at a universities, and I I cannot teach. I mean, I could. It's funny I could teach very young children, and I can teach university. But please do not ask me to teach like seventh to twelfth grade because there's a pain in the ass. Yeah, you have to have a certain mindset to teach. And there are some people who do it magnificently, and I applaud them. I am not one of those people. No. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, but we have had like open courses, which means that we have to register your kid into a course. But we also have had courses, workshops going into the schools. And that has mainly been through the residency artists. So if they are interested in doing something, some sort of a workshop with the kids in the school, specifically here in Seyersfjörder, it's too long to go into other schools. 
yeah, so we have been doing that as well. And then we have had a program since 2001 with through the Academy, Art Academy. So they come here, a group of students come here with, for 17 years it used to be with Björn Roth, the son of Dieter, who was like teaching, leading the workshop. And they came here for two weeks and with teacher also from the school, Christian Stengrimur. And they came here and stayed for two weeks and worked, you know, got inspired by the place and worked with the locals and ended up doing an exhibition in the gallery. And But that changed two years ago. Then we started having a group of students from the academy and they were aiming for printing with a teacher from the academy. And we did that once and then, you know, everything fell apart with the mudslides. And now we're hoping that we have rebuilt at least so we can have a functional printing facility in March next year. So we have a group coming then. Are you, just a stupid question, like really pedantic, but are you going to rebuild like the same? So are you going to get the same printing facilities or are you? No, not really. We Like rethinking it, saying like, what should, what do we want kind of thing? We rethink, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you cannot remake it exactly the same because it was so specific. I mean, the facility existed because Dieter or his family gave the museum his presses. And that was like museum items but it was functional and and that was also in his spirit that we were using it you know but no you cannot remake as it was you just have to rethink and you have to also because there's a lot of people who have been willing to give all presses to us and I mean you know I don't know so much about printing but we have people who have the knowledge so they are kind of taking care of deciding what kind of method will we aim for in the beginning and how will we develop it. And I'm more like taking care of financing and preparing and yeah. Well, because I could see like it to a certain extent, it's a great opportunity to sort of define your printing process and your, your printing, your printing excellence and mastery. Like you could become the, the, preeminent place for a certain kind of printing yeah yeah definitely but i mean it's always about money though you know you always have to work within you know it's that's the limitation you have to work with what you get what price you know you have to move stuff all the way here and printing is also quite expensive and you know paper ink all these rolls everything you know everything that we need to buy to make it it's not that in the grand scheme of artistic methods, it's not that expensive. But I mean, the initial setup. Yeah, the initials. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, super expensive. Totally agree. But once you get it up and running, it's pretty easily low maintenance and low cost after the initial build. But the initial build, yeah, absolutely, is quite exorbitant. Yeah. And we did try out, we had this thematic residency called Printing Matter. And then we had, it was a three-week workshop with a group of artists who came here. And the leading artist was from Denmark who came here. And yeah, then we found out how expensive 
it is to start. You know, it's super expensive because, I mean, the facility was functional, but it was very low key. And then you have to kind of build it up slowly. And after every session, you know, okay, we need to make this better or this, you know, this and that. And then you have to work within the limitation of finance. And it's, but I think that's fun because you can't be creative and you can't do something that's, you know, functional and you can actually do something great with it. It doesn't have to be the best facility in the world, you know. It, and I think, yeah, limitation is something we have become <laughs> expertise of, you know. You just have to work with what you have. What limitations in what encourage creativity or some, there's some saying about that? Definitely. And also, why would people travel all the way here if they can access printing facilities somewhere much better? I mean, you know, when you come here, it's the place and it's the limitations as well. It is. But I, I see it as I, anytime there's like somebody building or rebuilding a facility, I always see amazing potentials for like what could be done with it. I, I'm an optimist in that way. Yeah, definitely. And of course, after this mudslide, we were able to get some sort of funded to do, to rebuild. It was easier for us after that to get some funding into this. I have to admit, I just looked it up on Google. Holy shit, that thing, like nobody got hurt. No. It's incredibly impressive. Yeah, it was, yeah, horrific. I'm just going to ask the really dumb question, but like, okay, do so I'm looking at this picture on, I don't know, the news. Do you then get rid of all of that that all that slid down and like put it back to normal, or do you just like incorporate it and then rebuild sort of over top of it? One area they just kind of, I mean, they had to remove a lot of soil, of course, and then they had to go to rescue this stuff. You know, some houses were just completely ruined, but you could find some of the stuff that belonged to people and you know that just had to find that and give people a chance to go through their things basically and see if they wanted to keep it or not and then they used the material to make like wall like a protection wall so it protects today it protects something if there's like a small mudslide but if there would go one like this it would not prevent anything. So the idea is to like drain the mountain to try to, because this was also, it rained for a week and it would had never rained so much here before. It was just, yeah, pouring for a week. It's a lot. I mean, I'm looking at it. It looks like, like what, four entire city blocks covered. Yeah, it's huge. It was huge. And I live also in an area this mudslide came beside my house. And like there's a field down below my house, which was just full of mud and big rocks. And it took half a year to just remove the soil and, you know, try to put it back to as normal as can be. But it's still kind of unsolved you know because we don't know what's gonna happen you know is it gonna rain as much next winter is it what's you know yeah they kind of have to give it like a year or two to see like is this the new normal before we rebuild yeah well they're not gonna rebuild where the houses left went they're not gonna rebuild there 
so they have to kind of rethink the structure of the town and yeah all right are there any topics that you want to talk about that i didn't ask you about no not that i can think of i think we kind of went over everything okay yeah my, then my last question that I generally ask everybody is some advice for the next generation from your own experiences, you know, things, basically the idea is like things you wish you knew when you were 20 that you now know. And you're like, well, of course that was true. Why didn't I believe that or know it? When I was 20, I was very shy and kind of insecure about what I was doing, and I would definitely say, don't be, <laughs> just do it. You know, the older generation doesn't know everything, you know. Everybody's just figuring everything out, and everybody's allowed to experiment and do stuff, be creative and work. Lovely. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I enjoy asking stupid questions to smart people, and I've learned so many different things about what I've done wrong and what I can do better in my career. And I hope that this podcast has inspired and assisted you in becoming more successful in your creative endeavors. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and maybe a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank Todd FF for writing a review and giving us a five-star rating. Thank you, Todd FF. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene in Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes, or you can find more information about the podcast on Instagram at the Wise Fool Pod or our website wisefoolpod.com.